Welcome to the Pubway Podcast. Each episode will showcase a conversation with a leader from the publishing world. If you're working at a publisher, a DSP or SSP, or you're just curious about the media industry and want to sit down and pick the brains of the experts from within the publishing space, then this is the show for you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pubway Podcast. My name is Tina Yannikino. And I'm Mike Villalobos. And in today's episode, I'm really excited to uh, partner up with Locker and talk a little bit more about first-party data, email identifiers, and the use, or rising use, rather, of synthetic data. Yeah, and it's our absolute pleasure to introduce Keith Petri, um, who is the CEO of Locker. Thanks for having me, guys. Mike and Tina, it's a pleasure to be here. It's been a long time coming. I think uh, it took us a bit to get here, uh, but we finally stopped at the Pubway. Um, really quickly, Keith, can you just walk us through your background just so our, our audience can get just a, an idea of you know what, your expertise, where you've come from, and all the good stuff? Yeah, context, as we all know, is extremely important. Uh, Pun definitely intended. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, my name's Keith Petrie. I'm the founder of Locker. Uh, so prior to founding Locker, I've spent over a decade in the data management space. I spearheaded the first mobile DMP in 2012, which the, was the first of many years of mobile. Uh, I later served as the chief strategy officer for Screen6. We were the largest private identity graph provider we provided uh, deduplicated data sets and built cross-browser and cross-device connectivity for a number of ad tech platforms. We were acquired at the end of 2018. I continue with my passion uh, around data and identity, and I founded Locker to give consumers a means to control these mechanisms. So in essence, for the sake of this conversation, you could say that my kind of like drive to build trust and transparency around data practices is fueled by my kind of deep understanding of how the sausage is made, maybe sometimes even writing the recipe of how the sausage is made. Uh, <laughs> and I, I fully support the open and free web. And I think that the main stakeholder, the, the consumer has been forgotten and kind of become an afterthought, even, even a commodity uh, when debating how this, this model works. And I'm excited to uh, hopefully change that with everything going on nowadays. Yeah, I think you bring a, a really good point of, of commoditizing the consumer which I'm assuming is exactly how, what brought this on of email deprecation. Um, with email identifiers being deprecated, how is that unfolding today? Uh, but what really, what really brought this on? In my, out of your professional opinion, why are we here today? And what does that look like tomorrow? Yeah, so these changes were brought on by privacy legislation, obviously first in Europe with GDPR, uh, then in the US with CCPA, and now there's a total of eight other states that have followed suit. Uh, so ironically, though, you could argue that email is more invasive than cookies ever were before. Uh, but let's let's like take a step back. Privacy regulation does not actually make cookies illegal. Like that's like a major misconception in the market today. So what really happened is that Apple saw this as an opportunity to expand their relatively like nascent ad tech business underneath the guise of privacy to their consumers. And so they've not only depreciated cookies in Safari starting in 2020, but they followed with app tracking transparency, also known as ATT, which is now impacting like 70% of IDFAs, which are the mobile identifiers. And then they introduced private relay, which manipulates IP addresses. Uh, so others have followed suit since then. So you have Firefox in 2021 also depreciating cookies. 
Uh, and unfortunately, the industry as a whole, they didn't really react uh, because the Chrome browser, which makes up a much larger percentage of the market, hasn't depreciated cookies yet. Uh, however, Chrome has now committed to a timeline and they will remove cookies in 2024. Uh, they're going to start with just doing 1% in Q1. And then in the second half of the year, they're going to ramp that up. And so basically, like as a result of the, of the industry looking for this new identifier to fill the void and maintain this status quo of uh, targeted advertising, there are several, several solutions in market, but most of them center around email. That makes sense. Um, and given that everything's kind of taking a step back and being becoming more private, do you see synthetic data and modeling around uh, these identifiers a thing of the future? Or how do you see that playing into the ecosystem? Yeah, so quality first-party data is imperative to generate anything that's usable in terms of synthetic data. So at the end of the day, it's an extrapolation, and that extrapolation can only occur if like the root is dense enough. Uh, with that said, something that I find to be overlooked in these discussions with the industry is that there's an importance of a persistent ID to extrapolate against. Now, I try to not get in the weeds, especially on a lovely <laughs> podcast with no visuals involved, but I think it's like, <laughs> important to to dive into. So I'm gonna try to... go full nerd if you have yeah. to. Everyone will appreciate yeah. it. Go on, but that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll try my best, but I will also try to keep it simple. Uh, so if we take the an average publisher with 100 uniques, this is just for the sake of a round number that we can all handle. Now, five of these unique visitors are registered. And all 100 have a first party cookie associated with them. For simplicity's sake, this is an internal identifier that's randomly assigned ID 1, ID 2, ID 3, et cetera. So for the five users that you do have that are authenticated and verified, the publisher, let's say that it's Sports Illustrated, for an example, knows which sport that this visitor follows, perhaps their favorite team, and maybe they can presume from that what university they attended, so on and so forth. So based on this cohort of users and the common first-party ID they have across all 100% of their users, they can extrapolate and apply synthetic data appropriately. However, where many people get confused is that as a result of the depreciation of the third-party cookie, this extrapolation can no longer happen across domains like it used to. So like this hinders all aspects of modeling specifically SSPs, DSPs, DMPs, and the like. And so like many discussions today focus on a common ID for the cohort, for the five people. However, the users who make up that seed data set, it's more than just them. So it's vital to have a means to extrapolate that seed data set beyond that. And that's still missing, period, from the market today. So the solutions today that do try to solve for that, at the end of the day, they're really all fingerprinting. Uh, I know that's a bad word. I know that we don't like saying it, but they're all using user agents and IP addresses to store some type of statistical representation of that user, either on that device locally or on the server side. Uh, and I just don't see that practice being sustained in the future, uh, unfortunately. So I do think that it's important that we understand the challenges laying ahead for continuing the use of uh, any type of modeling at all, whether it's old school or new school. Yeah, I think we even user agents are starting to become a little bit obsolete. And even with IP addresses within Apple, you're seeing a lot of cohorting or herding. So 
that in and of itself will make it much more difficult for the modeling, to your point, of uh, trying to future-proof through identity. By the way, nobody even talks about it on the Google side. All new Google hardware as of January 1st, 2023, natively goes through a VPN. So yep. it's the same thing across the board. It's that they're further along with manipulating IP addresses than obviously they are with cookies at this stage. Yeah, which I think also rightly leads us to obviously consumer data privacy uh, from a publisher perspective and the mounting concern there, how publishers can thoughtfully manage this data from their readers. You know, there's um, people can be data processors, data controllers, but where exactly should a publisher fall from both an ethical and just a pure just <laughs> management perspective? Yeah. So publishers are looking at consumer data privacy and even from the way that the question is worded, which is more than appropriate, but publishers yeah. <laughs> are looking at consumer data privacy merely from like a compliance perspective. They want to comply with the latest laws and that's it, unfortunately. So they're ensuring that they provide the appropriate means for opting in and opting out, editing and updating, you know, any requests from individuals or flat out deletion requests. So generally publisher consent solutions are complex and difficult, if not impossible for the average consumer to manage on an ongoing basis. And this is because they were built to protect the enterprise from any legal action, which in all candor, it's the best first step and it's the right first step. Uh, so at Locker, though, we encourage publishers to adopt a transparent consumer first approach when it comes to data privacy. And we believe that the consumer should understand how their data is being used and have the control to opt in or out of that usage, as well as update their preferences over time. And that in and of itself can complement a CMP, which a publisher is already integrated today. And being proactive with this step will only instill a better relationship with consumers. And these brands will be, I, I think, rewarded very handsomely for that approach. Totally. And on the brand note, especially as we're, you know, rethinking the scale of the open web with third-party cookie deprecation on the horizon, as we all are probably very bored about hearing about <laughs> at this point, it's, it's kind of beating a dead horse. But email has been such a main driver of publisher first-party data historically. I guess, how can publishers first-party data help brands succeed now in this privacy-first world? Yeah, so I'm going to I'm gonna piggyback on an earlier guest of Pubway uh, and so similar to what Brett uh, Goverman shared. Uh, I think the publishers are holding the power. I mean, previously, a publisher's audience was leaked as a result of a common identifier that was enabled because of seeking across pubs, brands, and all the ad tech platforms that bridge that supply and demand. So with the cookie crumbling, the bridge no longer exists. Again, we're doing puns all day here, Mike. Uh, <laughs> so there's only inventory associated with an authenticated user, which matches a user on the brand side is understood and able to be assessed by, by buyers. Uh, so a publisher's unique data is no longer commoditized in the market. Uh, and so this will grow the ability to, to generate premium direct demand and whether the audience segment is derived from attributes provided by the publisher or by the brand, if there's an appropriate seed data set, the data and the data is stored appropriately by the publisher, it can be extrapolated against all of their available inventory. And so the opportunity here is for the publisher who properly plans ahead and implements systems and solutions today to like garner the trust of visitors, encourage high rates of authentication, ensure that that authentication data is clean uh, when it's collected, 
and then store this data in a way that it can be appropriately used whenever it needs to. A, a quick question, Keith. In the same vein of, I think, Locker, but also uh, the CMP the approach, how does Locker play within a customer data platform? Um, I'm curious because I think the customer data platform has really had a quick rise. It's a little bit nuanced, but different than a CRM. Um, so if you can walk us through where Locker plays within that publisher CDP or customer data platform, that would be super helpful for our audience, I think. Yeah, so I'll take a stab at like maybe CDPs in general in the yeah. market, and then I'll kind of address the Locker. Uh, it's not Locker versus CDPs because we exactly. don't compete. No. We, we yeah. complement, but, but we'll, get, we'll get to that secondarily. So uh, customer data platforms, I mean, they're often conflated with DMPs of, of yesteryear. Uh, but they're really the backbone of a publisher's user base. So if I can point to like one of the most surprising things, uh, transitioning from the platform side of the business, mainly dealing with DSPs, SSP, DMPs, ad servers, uh, et cetera, to now focusing on publisher tech. I mean, I was shocked at the lack of proper data storage. So we need to see more publishers adopting CDPs and taking ownership and control of their most valuable asset. And that's where Locker hopefully does step in and enables that data to be ported from a publisher site into the appropriate data ecosystem where it can be used. So Locker, we are not an identifier. We fully support Trade Desk, UID2, LiveRamp ATS, any data cleanroom. We are not a CDP. We, again, fully support Telium, Blue Conic, et cetera. We are not a data cleanroom. We support InfoSum, Habu, Snowflake. It doesn't matter to us. We are ensuring that proper data is collected and consented from the consumer and it's clean data and used and that the publisher can easily port that to any ecosystem that they want. If they want to pass it to InfoSum and Optable, we enable that. If they want to pass it to Blue Conic and Telium, we enable that. If they want to put it in AWS, GCP, et cetera, we enable that. Uh, and all of that is authenticated data from their site. So either a, a login event, a newsletter, sign up, so on and so forth. Uh, so I don't know if that directly answers the question, but we, we want to make sure the publisher is storing this data and can utilize it, which is something that we were surprised to find out was not kind of the first step of setting up a publisher's ad tech infrastructure. Yeah. So, I mean, with that answer in mind, and you mentioning there's clearly a gap in the management of that data and proper storage, do you feel like that could be one possible solution to help publishers not only get more growth, but authentic user growth in their data sets? Yeah. So unfortunately, I think there's a big difference between the publisher's strategy of storing this data and utilizing this data versus how do they garner more of this data to begin with. Uh, and that's sort of like the difference I'm like spitballing here, but the difference between like, I never even say these words, right? But like cooking and baking or whatever, like normal, normal cooking is, uh, is an art, whereas baking is a science. And so at the end of the day, you need to, as a publisher, as a brand, as a retailer, it doesn't matter what type of business you are, you need to be transparent, you need to instill trust, and you need to clearly communicate with your audience. And so like clearly outlining the value exchange in an appropriate way to site visitors and like seeing the same communication of the value exchange across multiple publishers, that's going to create education and understanding of the challenges faced by these publishers by the average user. So like 
that sounded really convoluted, but really what I mean at the end of the day is this is the equivalent of like the rise in like ad blockers. So not everyone understands the intricacies and certainly not everyone has an ad blocker on their browser, but a very large portion of consumers are aware that they exist and that they have a negative impact on publishers and their revenue. Like that is a very common thing. And I think that this is just another start of a new cycle in terms of why does a user need to register or provide any type of information on a publisher site? Makes sense. Quick, quick uh, deviating question. And it just occurred to me as we were talking through like the publisher strategies and um, I guess the future of the deprecation of emails. How do you see this playing within retail media networks, right? Uh, the reason why I asked that is we, we talked about this, I think a couple of weeks ago, you and I, Keith, of uh, digitally or uh, digitally digitally created emails be having a rampant rise. I mean, I, I see it all the time where I want my 50% um, discount with a new email. I just do the Apple anonymous email and it goes through. How do you see Locker playing within that environment, but also the impact that this whole movement's going to have within retail media networks like a Best Buy or a Walgreens or Dwayne Reed, whatever it may be? Yeah, so there's a number of questions in there. So yeah, <laughs> first and foremost, in terms of email as the new identifier, you know, publishers, retailers, and brands, they're all focused on this. They're being told as a result of the encouragement of the Trade Desk UID2, Live Ramp ATS, and all the clean rooms that we just talked through. Like they're being told that they need to collect them and they are ramping up that touch point on their various properties, whether it is the pop-up on a retailer or a D2C website asking for your email in exchange for a benefit, or if it is a publisher's registration wall. Uh, and consumers are getting fed up with giving out their email everywhere as their inboxes are exploding. And they're starting to use kind of these anonymous dummy emails instead. This used to be relegated to tech-savvy, you know, early adopters that were using old school tools like Abine and Mailinator and Lunar Mail and Simple Login. And I, I could name a hundred off the top of my head. Uh, however, Apple Hide My Email is now natively integrated with Safari on desktop and mobile. They're also natively built into the keyboard on iOS. And it presents you as the user with the opportunity to click a button and you give out a what we refer to as a machine generated email, which is completely useless. That retailer is now giving you a discount and the email that you provided as Mike is abc at appleid.com. When that retailer, after they see that you buy running shoes, wants to target you with a new running watch, there is no way to find you on any publisher's site. You are impossible to find. This is going to impact retailers. This is going to impact brands. This is going to impact publishers the most because we're seeing two-thirds of a publisher's revenue evaporate as soon as they don't have a persistent identifier associated with a piece of inventory. So, I mean, there's also implications across the board and was part of the impetus of, of starting Locker in terms of like consumer experience, customer experience. There's actually a to-do list application called AnyList. And AnyList produced a blog post and they voiced frustration over all of their user complaints as a result of Apple hide my email being built in as a sign-in solution on their iOS app. It was causing hurdles for their users who created a to-do list uh, account on their phone and then tried to log in on their computer and they typed in Mike at Gmail, which I'm sure is your email address. <laughs> as soon as they typed in Mike at Gmail to sign in on their desktop, 
any list would pop up going, we don't have an account with Mike at Gmail because the user genuinely didn't know that on mobile, Apple had replaced their email with some 200 character long email address that was only a one-time use email. So I don't know if that directly answers your question, but this is going to impact all facets of business, number one. This is going to impact all of ad tech and MarTech, number two. And unfortunately, the current solutions in marketing also interrupt consumers and their day-to-day -day business, their day-to-day interactions with companies as well. Clearly opened up a can of worms, but I think that was a <laughs> phenomenal answer. So thank you for taking the time to actually break that down. So avoid the, the negative impacts. With your, I think, knowledge that you've had so far, what could, what could publishers or retail networks, whatever it may be, what are strategies they could implement to potentially future-proof this in the next two to three years? Yeah, so I, I think that there's, number one, as we've already talked about, importance of having a strategy around collecting first-party data. Like that is the most important aspect of like a publisher's thought process over the next, you know, five quarters between now and the end of 2024, which is going to sneak up on us very, very quickly. And testing these strategies, unfortunately, takes a significant amount of time and resources. And so to integrate one of these alternative identifiers uh, into your flow takes engineering resources, sometimes takes the resources of user experience at a publisher, uh, sometimes incorporates teams that are outside of programmatic and ad tech, whether that might be the subscriber marketing team uh, or the audience development team, usually underneath the same umbrella. Uh, but you need to get all of these various stakeholders involved in these discussions, and you need to you know, consciously think through what are the steps that we need to take as a, as a business. Totally. And I guess, would you say having a strategy just in general could be a key takeaway of our conversation today for publishers. Um, I feel like we're all kind of building the plane while it's already <laughs> in flight. Is uh, Clearly, we're all in that uh, mental space right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I would take it a step further and bluntly say, don't wait. This is not theoretical anymore. Uh, nearly 50% of open web traffic is already impacted as a result of this. And obviously, we're assuming that given the timelines that have been expressed, we will have 100% of unaddressable cookie-less inventory by the end of 2024. And so uh, it's been said that it's never too late to act, but uh, I'd start to change that tune and say that if you haven't taken any steps yet to building that deeper relationship with your visitors, uh, then you are probably behind at this point. Totally. No, that that's totally fair. Um, amazing. I, I guess I would love to kind of pivot a little bit and have our readers learn a little bit more about you and kind of uh, on a more of the personal level. And I think something we love asking is, especially being around the media industry for as long as many of us have been, we haven't always gotten the best advice. So I would love if you could share with our listeners uh, perhaps the best and worst advice you've ever <laughs> received. Maybe they're one and the same. <laughs> They're not one and the same. I definitely, I, I, I knew this was coming. I listened to your other episodes. <laughs> I asked you to uh, think through this. I think if you asked me this on my feed at a, at a happy hour, I would fail miserably at, at thinking through uh, my prior experiences. But by far, the, the best advice I've received was from a good friend of mine and the CEO of my prior company. It certainly wasn't original advice. It was Winston Churchill's quote of perfection is the enemy of progress. 
which is very, very similar to the Pareto principle or the 80-20 rule. Mm -hmm. But basically the concept behind it is that my 80% was somebody else's 110% and he was telling me to just ship it and stop second guessing. Uh, and I think about that genuinely every single day across all facets of my you know, responsibilities, projects, emails, et cetera. Just, just send it is, is that advice. The worst advice, and I think I'm going to get a lot of negative feedback from this one. Uh, Love controversy. Yeah. <laughs> Hire slow and fire fast. Uh, I think that that once was appropriate, but in this day and age, and especially given the stage of our business, which might be different than your business and any other business, I completely disagree. I think hiring can mean a lot of things for a startup, especially during COVID. And I think that you need to make those decisions extremely fast in either direction. So I would say hire fast and fire fast. Yeah, I totally, that's more than fair. And I think to hire fast, especially in a startup in like a hyper growth mode, you might not always have the exact role, but when you right. meet a talented, perfect person who knows that have a positive impact on your business, you just want them in the door immediately and you'll find a place for them. A hundred percent agree. On the, I think we have quite a few startup listeners, but I think it's really helpful to hear from a CEO's perspective. What do you do to set someone up for success in that hiring fast? Because sometimes when you're, when you're hiring too quickly, you tend to drop the ball maybe on, on training or onboarding, whatever it may be. Um, what have you done in your business to really set folks up for success? Yeah, so I'd actually say that we failed at that. Uh, <laughs> I, would, I would openly state that. That's fair, uh, and, and in regards to, to justifying that, I think that you need a different personality at different stages of your business. And sure. that, that is true of myself, by the way. Uh, I don't necessarily fit into certain org structures, should that be something I, I look at in the future. Uh, and so basically, from my perspective, when you're a startup or a young company, and I really would define that more as like the founders through the first, you know, two dozen employees, you're hiring an individual that doesn't need that onboarding. Whereas you then get into a growth phase and you need a different personality and then you have a scaled enterprise and you need a different personality. So I don't know if that directly answers the question, but I would no, certainly does. say, <laughs> I would certainly say that you need somebody more nimble that doesn't necessarily need the handholding. Otherwise you hired wrong to begin with. Yeah. And I think it speaks to we're all constantly learning. You know, nobody's perfect and we're going to make mistakes, but it's how you kind of react and learn from that. Um, that's how you can get better personally and professionally. On the learning note, is there any books you're currently reading to either for enjoyment, for business or any both. insights that are both <laughs> just live, sleep, breathe, add text? <laughs> my, my enjoyment is business. I would say most, if not 100% of the books that I do read are nonfiction. Uh, most are related to our day-to-day -day lives, uh, which is depressing, but also exciting for me. Uh, and I would, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that I have a very poor habit of starting books, getting to a point in the book that I feel like I've, I've picked up enough and then moving on. Uh, I think it's most of us to be honest. <laughs> the current book that I'm doing that with, and I have not moved on from yet is, uh, Privacy is Power by Carissa Velez, who's a professor at Oxford and she focuses on, on privacy, technology and, and public policy. And so. It's very relevant to a number of the discussion points we talked about today. Love it. Well, if Chris ever listens to this episode, uh, maybe she can hop on the pod too. <laughs> I'll we'll, we'll tag her in it. On exactly. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, I, I think that's uh, of wrapping up 
point, a good beat. Yeah. Um, I think, thank you so much, Keith, for joining us today. I, I learned a lot personally. I'm sure our, our listeners did too. And we've, we're thrilled to have you on with us today. Likewise, Lindsay. It's, it's been to here. Love, love talking publisher tech and love hearing about all the other struggles that they based outside of what I deal with on a day basis when listening to Pubway's topics. <laughs> Appreciate the feedback. Thanks, we love Keith. it. And uh, hopefully we'll see you next week at Out of Week. Yep. Very excited. Cheers, guys. Perfect. Thank you.